A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and today we're talking with the brilliant archaeologist Dr. Rebecca Ragsykes all about Neanderthals, that extinct hominin that coexisted with early humans, with Homo sapiens. What do we know about the Neanderthals? Well, today Rebecca is giving us a lovely 40-minute overview of the latest research into Neanderthals, for instance, what we know about what they ate their diet, their communities, their daily tasks, their origins, and so on and so forth. So without further ado, to talk all about Neanderthals, to give you an overview, a starting guide to Neanderthals, here's Rebecca. Rebecca, It is wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. You are more than welcome for a topic like this, Neanderthals. We're only going to be scratching the surface today, but this really feels like such an exciting area of prehistory to study, to focus in on, this homonym, because it almost feels like in the last few decades, like with the origins of Homo sapiens, we're learning so much more about Neanderthals. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they really are the ancients, so they are quite well suited to your podcast, I think. I find Neanderthals interesting on so many different levels for themselves, but also they are a really good sort of case study for how archaeology as a discipline has actually developed and how different the way that we do things is now compared to the early days of prehistory, which in fact is over 150 years ago um, that sort of prehistorians started doing their thing and I would love to sort of see their faces if they went onto a modern excavation and see the the meticulousness with which we we work now. And so how have scientific advances, how have they really helped us and technology and the like learn more about these Neanderthals? Well there's loads of different things. I mean archaeological science is like its own sort of sub discipline basically and there's just an immense amounts of different sort of methods and techniques that we can use for anything from sort of dating so you know back in early days of prehistory if you found a site you basically had no way to directly know how old it was 
versus another site in a different valley you might be digging. You just sort of compared your artefacts and said, oh, I think these look a bit older. Or maybe the animals that you find are different. But now we have all sorts of ways to directly date many different materials. So we can, obviously, everybody's heard of radiocarbon dating. That only works up to about 55, 60,000 years ago, which for Neanderthals is very recent. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you've done your radiocarbon, um, but it's not old enough um, or it's coming out as an infinite measure, then there are other things you can do. You can do electron spin resonance or uranium series and Obviously, these are kind of similar to radiocarbon because you're talking about isotopes and sort of elemental methods. But there's other things you can do. For example, if you have some stone tools that were burned in the past, you can date those as well. So there's all different things. That's just how old stuff is. But then you've got just like so many different methods to actually study the materials that you find that you're excavating and, and learn about them, you know, whether you're looking at technology how stone and tools were made where they come from you know you can source things to the to the outcrops of particular rocks you can look for the residues left on stone tools you can look uh, for the really distinctive use where traces um, that are formed when tools are used on different substances loads and loads of things so there's like this whole archaeological science which is all kind of like labs and white coats and you know sort of glitzy sort of side of it but then there's also this other aspect to how we think about archaeology and how we do it now. And that kind of developed over the, the past sort of 40, 50 years, which is that people gradually began to realise that what we excavate from the ground, actually, you know, that the layers themselves, the sediments, they actually contain an awful lot more stuff than people used to assume so you know rather than just digging out all the sediment and only keeping the nice pretty stone tools or the most complete bones which is what used to happen now we keep basically everything all of the stone objects most of them that are larger than two centimeters will be recorded in 3d space with laser which is important for you to know how your site actually forms where they all fit we do the same with bones and, you know, in amongst the sediment, too, you've got sort of fine preservation of, you know, things down to the size of pollen, sort of tiny pieces of insects. Everything is just there waiting for us. And, and gradually people realised it's there. There's this huge archive of material and we just have to be inventive enough to work out ways to access all of that information. And that's why today, you know, I can I can write a book like this, an entire book. 400 pages just about Neanderthal life because we can actually say a lot. It is so exciting indeed. And with all of these resources available, Rebecca, I mean, how could you therefore distinguish a Neanderthal? What exactly is a Neanderthal? How would a Neanderthal be recognised? Well, I mean, Neanderthals essentially are just another kind of human. So sort of in a official sort of parlance, we would call them another kind of hominin. So they are part of our broader human family tree, but they're not sort of exactly the same as us and our direct ancestors, Homo sapiens. Um, but in terms of sort of where they fit into human origins more broadly, they're actually very recent. So, you know, I was just saying, oh, 50,000, 60,000 years ago, that's recent for Neanderthals. That's because they, as far as we can see at the moment, they disappear around 40 thousand years ago 
but they actually began to emerge sort of as a population that that are looking distinctive somewhere between about 400 and 350,000 years ago. And that sounds awfully long and it is it's a very long time and it's only a little bit before our own species homo sapiens also emerged but in Africa different context um, or at least we believe in Africa. But put that into the deeper setting of human origins and it's it's not very old <laughs> like you have sort of homo erectus that people will have heard of you know well older than a million years or you have the australopithecines so the sort of little bipedal hominins not very tall probably using stone tools lucy you know that's 3.4 million years which is much 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 older so neanderthals are very close really to where we fit and not only are they close in time, but in terms of relatedness as well, they are, we believe, the closest hominin relation to us. So we shared a common ancestor with them only around 550, sort of 700,000 years ago, which is not long at all. Not long at all in the whole story. And it's great to give it that context, as you just have there, Rebecca. I know you generally talk about the Romans and it sounds dreadfully long compared to that. But Trust me, we've done the origins of life on Earth and what's gone on before the dinosaurs, so don't worry at all. <laughs> yeah. It's always nice going this far back. But I mean, from what you've mentioned now, I could go down so many different strands, but what I quite found really interesting there was what you mentioned about the context of Homo sapiens coming from Africa, the recent African origin idea. We talked to Professor Chris Stringer all about this. Do we have any idea where in the world Neanderthals emerge from? Have we got any idea if there's any kind of area from where they spread out from? Well, at the moment, what we can see from the fossil record that we have, um, and it is far better you know, than it used to be 50 years ago or whatever, it does look as if the earlier hominins are coming from Africa. There are probably sort of dispersals of hominins into Eurasia, before two million years ago. So there is a really ancient context for that. But that's not the only time we believe that that there was there were movements out. We think it happened multiple times. At the moment, the oldest sort of fossils that look like they are heading towards becoming Homo sapiens, but with different sort of aspects of them in different regions, they are in Africa, North Africa, different parts. But everything that looks Neanderthalish, even very early is in Eurasia. We find nothing like that in Africa. So what we don't know is where the common ancestor for us and Neanderthals was. And generally that's been assumed also to be in Africa. But like I said, there had been earlier dispersals into Eurasia and there is kind of a, a period sort of between like 800,000 years ago and, you know, six. 500,000 years ago, where there's all sorts of different fossils from Eurasia, some of which look a little bit like some things in Africa, but not in other ways. And it's it's all quite confusing, really. And, you know, there are, there are different opinions on that. But just recently, in fact, there was a, a publication suggesting that perhaps that at common ancestor may not have been in Africa. It may have been in Eurasia, but it's just a possibility because at the moment, the fossil record is, although there is quite a lot of, of material, actually working out the relationships of the different fossils that we find and, and when and where things are is really quite confusing. But what's certain is that nobody thus far has ever found 
a Neanderthal looking skull or sort of other thing that's distinctive um, to Neanderthals, you know, anywhere in, in Africa, um, it seems to be sort of the Near East is, is the most southerly area, sort of Palestine, Jordan, somewhere like that. But their actual sort of realm of existence included Europe, of course, which has historically had the most tension, but also further east into parts of Asia. But at the moment, kind of stopping around Central Asia and sort of bits of Siberia, but we haven't found any Neanderthal-specific stuff as far, say, as China yet. I mean, that's so interesting. So is there still quite a lot of debate around what was the predecessing homonym to Neanderthals, Homo habilis or Homo agaster, or or another homonym? Um, well, habilis and agaster are much, much older, um, so sort of two oh, okay. million, My one bad. million years ago. So they, we believe they are part of this much deeper ancestral lineage that eventually would lead to the common ancestor of sapiens and Neanderthals. Um, but yeah, at the moment, you know, exactly what the population was that gave rise to both Neanderthals and to Homo sapiens is unclear. There are sort of different contenders. For example, there's a, a Spanish site um, in uh, northern Spain, uh, Atapuerca. There are lots of different fossil localities there. Some of them are very old, older than a million years. But one particular one, the Cima de los Huesos, is about 430,000 years old. So that's a bit before what we see sort of in terms of the anatomy as emerging and becoming Neanderthals in, in bones elsewhere. But we can see there's a genetic link there between those individuals. So they might be sort of thought of as like a proto-Neanderthal population. But it's very complicated, basically. And it really is one of those areas in archaeology where you say we need more data. <laughs> Fair enough. I always ask those questions first of all, but we'll very soon go on to the Neanderthal communities themselves, talk about food, etc., etc. But one last key question to set the scene for our discussion. I'd like to ask a bit about what are the key anatomical features that distinguish Neanderthals. Now, I appreciate that there's probably variation between individual Neanderthals, but what are some general overarching features that you would recognise if you saw a Neanderthal fossil and say, hey, that's a Neanderthal? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's a really good point. You know, Neanderthals are not, not like clones. They did vary individually. But overall, sort of on a, on a general basis, Neanderthals are more robustly built and that includes going down to having slightly thicker bones. They're a little bit shorter on average, but not like super short necessarily. Some are taller than others. You know, we have some very short little Neanderthals <laughs> and some a bit bigger. But sort of across their body, there are sort of other particular things that would be visible. For example, um, some of the proportions of their limbs are just a slightly different. But we can see things like the shape of their ribs is quite distinctive. So in, in Homo sapiens, in us, our ribs kind of flare outwards at the top, but not at the bottom. So we have a little waist, you know, in theory. <laughs> um, one has a waist. Whereas Neanderthals, it kind of more flares outwards towards the bottom. So they, they kind of would look a lot more barrel chesty, basically. And you might notice that, um, you know, even if, say, they were dressed up in clothes or, or whatever, um, you might notice that they look very thick set. But I think most most distinctive, obviously, is their faces and their, and their skulls. And I think if you were 
to meet a Neanderthal than they would probably be the most distinctive looking person you've ever met and you just think wow I've never seen <laughs> never seen anyone who looks like this before but you certainly wouldn't sort of think that that it wasn't a person looking back at you I think you would but they would just look very very unusual so the main differences are the shape of their heads overall so we kind of when you look at us compared to other hominins we've got an unusually balloon-shaped sort of head we're quite round whereas Neanderthals have much more swept back kind of skull so they don't have this really quite vertical forehead like if you sort of feel above your nose it's, it's quite vertical really that bone going all the way up whereas Neanderthals it's sloping back more they obviously have large brow ridge but the form of it is not the same either and they don't have a chin so, you know, you, again, somebody might make jokes about how chinny an individual person amongst us today is, but no Neanderthals had really the same kind of bony thing that you can feel under your own sort of mouth. It's quite clearly there. And that's kind of related to the fact that they had like a long face, but the front of their face where their nose is and their mouth is kind of pulled forward compared to ours. So although it's sort of an unfortunate word, they look a bit more snouty. They're just a bit more pulled forward. And that's because they have bone growth cells in that area, whereas we have bone absorption cells. So in fact, in some ways, although they are quite sort of pulled forward, even in relation to other hominins, it's actually us that are weird with our like sort of pug faced sort of <laughs> vibe going on. So that would, I think you would notice that the size of the aperture for the, for their nose is large. So they probably really did have quite big noses and the orbital holes in, in, in the skull are also big. So they may have had quite large, obviously deep set eyes. So they would have had a very striking, quite craggy looking perhaps face as well. Do we have any idea why they looked like that? Well, I mean, this is what's also quite interesting about how researchers shift in ideas and theories and approaches um, over time. Initially, a lot of the thoughts about Neanderthals in, in terms of their lives and their bodies and their anatomy were sort of focused on cold climates and that this was an adaptation and everything was being viewed through that lens. And that's partly to do with the history of the discovery and that a lot of the early sites where Neanderthals were being found were from caves, uh, which happened to have a lot of cold adapted animals. So, you know, the woolly stuff like woolly rhinos, woolly mammoth, and then stuff that's clearly lives in cold environments now like reindeer. But obviously, over that huge span of time I was talking about for when they existed, there is not just one ice age, there's many of them, and there are many warm periods as well, just like there are now. So Neanderthals did live during periods which were not hyper-Arctic. like And sort of viewed from where we are now, we can see that they don't really look as if, in certainly in their behaviour and where they, where they seem to appear and disappear according to climate, they're not like something like an Arctic fox, which is just very much associated with you know, tundra and permafrost and all this sort of thing. That's that's not really their actual environment. And thoughts about their bodies and why their bodies look as they do have also kind of shifted a little bit away from the idea that maybe these massive noses, people used to suggest, well, perhaps it was to warm up the really cold Arctic-like air that they were breathing before it got to their lungs. And that has kind of shifted away 
from the cold, cold theory sort of focus. And now people suggest, um, for example, with, with um, the noses, that actually it might be about just sucking in massive amounts of oxygen because they were living very intensive lives. They had heavier bodies that are more costly to run and, you know, you need a lot of oxygen to metabolise. So, that you know, that's also perhaps relating to the lungs and the ribs and all these different things. So there's there's a lot more nuance, I think, um, in how we understand their anatomy now. Well, because we know so much about that, Rebecca, that leads us on nicely to the next section, which is, I'm guessing, therefore, they needed a lot of energy for for their bodies, for their anatomy, more than an average human? Well, I mean, when we try and assess sort of energetic needs from the past when we don't have the soft tissues then it's all based on kind of you know assessing the weight of the bones and the likely size of the muscles and everything like this so it is estimates but the rough sort of guess is that they might have needed between five to ten percent more energy to run the bodies and that's going to depend on the environment that they're in so if you're in a cold environment you've got you've got to keep your body warm and you need fuel for that if you are living in say an environment with very deep snow much of the year and you've got to run and hunt through that that's extremely exhausting so that's going to push your needs up as well but if you're a neanderthal in the near east living in a, a much more warm environment it's not going to be the same we do actually see differences in their bodies as well so there is an impression that Neanderthals from the warmer regions are a little bit more lightly built as well. Um, so that would match the differences in climate. But overall, they may have needed sort of anywhere from sort of three and a half thousand up to five thousand, maybe even beyond that in terms of calories per day, depending on what they're doing. And also, we shouldn't forget that, you know, being pregnant and breastfeeding are energetically very expensive just for women now and if you have a bigger baby that you've got to grow and you've got to feed it and then you've got to carry it when it's you know actually been born and and still too small to walk around that's another added sort of layer of energetic needs so there's all these different factors you have to sort of consider but overall they probably did need more fuel (laughs) than an equivalent homo sapiens in any given environment Hi there, I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author, and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, The History of Sex, Scandal and Society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustoleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So if they needed more fuel than a modern Homo sapien in that environment, and this is the time of ice ages, as you said earlier, so can we therefore imagine groups of Neanderthals hunting and taking on some of the most iconic, massive ice age prey that we think of today? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We, we don't even need to imagine it because you just dig it up and... and... <laughs> There's hundreds and hundreds of sites we have for Neanderthals. I think this is one of the things actually that that's worth saying that the Neanderthal record is really rich. We have thousands of bits of their bodies relating to probably hundreds of different individuals. Some of the skeletons are more complete. Sometimes you just like a bit, a bit of a jaw or something. So that's a really good record. We have material from, you know, very, very young babies all the way through the different ages till they're a bit older. So we understand their bodies, but we also have so much material from their living sites. You know, you can have one site with a layer being excavated with a 100,000 pieces of animal bone. So that's not whole bones. It's going to be smashed up stuff, but there's an immense rich record. So basically everywhere we look, it's very clear that Neanderthals are at the top of the tree in their local environment they are top predators the question of did they hunt like the really big charismatic megafauna it's pretty certain that they were getting primary access to massive things like woolly rhinoceros probably mammoth as well but perhaps just the young we're not entirely sure about hunting full adult sort of mammoth or elephant in in the warmer environments but what we can definitely say is that they definitely had spears, you know, and although horses don't sound quite so impressive, one of the most striking sites where we can see sort of a landscape of hunting is a German site called Schöningen, and this is about 330,000 years old, and we have multiple spears from this site. It's a lakeshore site, so it's an old lake that that got silted up, um, and we have uh, sort of really beautifully preserved lake shores with like all the scatters of the remains of stuff that Neanderthals are doing. And there's material from at least 50 horses that were killed and butchered there. Not all in one hunting episode, we believe. It's it's the sort of the trace of many different hunts over perhaps a century, maybe more or maybe less. But what's clear is that they are using spears. But these horses are not little 
sort of horses like you know if you think about the horses in the cave art made my after neanderthals um had disappeared those horses are actually quite small they're sort of i don't know like a welsh welsh pony or something that they're not big whereas these early horses are an extinct form and they're much more like massive thoroughbred things so they would have been again you know actually really hard to hunt very intimidating to to deal with with a herd of horses like that so that kind of megafauna is definitely part of 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 what neanderthals are up to as well and you know using a lake makes a lot of sense because horses are really disadvantaged in the water and it slows them down so much so we can actually see from from material at Sherningen that it looks like they were perhaps ambushed or driven into the water and then the bodies are being butchered right there in the water and then they're taking the good stuff and carrying on processing it on the shore. And this helps dispel that old myth that Neanderthals were just stupid scavengers, doesn't it? From what you're saying there, it sounds like these Neanderthals were top predators and expert hunters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sort of a few, you know, decades ago there were debates going on um i think in the in the very early days actually sort of early prehistorians did assume that neanderthals were hunting the animals that they were finding in the caves but you can't always make that assumption because depending on sort of the history of whatever site you're looking at sometimes for example hyenas are there they also like to use caves and some of the animals in in the particular might have been brought in by hyenas there's ways that you can pick those different signatures out but in the places where we're quite certain that neanderthals were responsible you know initially i think people were just assuming they had hunted them then it kind of shifted and there were claims made or maybe they were just scavenging they weren't actually hunting and then that shifted as well um, based on sort of more intensive analysis of the bones, but also from different analytical techniques where you can actually measure sort of the, the relative amounts of protein that Neanderthals are getting compared to other predators in the environment. And they do come out, you know, like hyena or wolf. They are up there in terms of the herbivores that they're eating. So they, they certainly, in any environment, meat was very very important to them but they didn't only go after big game sometimes they were a lot more flexible so i think that's such an important thing to stress isn't it because rebecca this is such a huge topic we're approaching today and as you say neanderthals they're found in all these different places the type of prey that these groups would have gone after depended on the local habitat the local environment and as you say in many of these environments, was it not the megafauna which was so prevalent? Was it more the the smaller prey that these communities would have gone after? Yeah, it depended very much on the environmental context. Um, so in, in colder environments, it makes sense to go after big animals or animals you can easily target um, in herds and things like this. For example, reindeer are not very um, aggressive. They're quite good. And we do see some sites where it looks like specific targeted reindeer hunts is what was going on um, over a long period of time but yeah in warmer contexts then they might be going more for medium game because that's what's around um so so say in iberia where the effects of ice ages yes it, it definitely still got colder but it obviously was sometimes it was more arid as well but often you still had red deer available in sort of arid woodland environments or scrub environments. But alongside that, you have small game. You've got boar, 
sometimes birds, um, even things like rabbit sometimes. I think the impression overall is that Neanderthals were quite well able to assess what made most sense to target and they went for the best of whatever was there. So if they lived near the coast, sometimes that involved using those resources which are quite rich as well. So I'm guessing so marine animals too could be on the the menu of a Neanderthal. Yeah, there are some places where we have, for example, down in um, Gibraltar, we've got some butchered seal and dolphin. But in that case, it's they're rare, they're anomalous within the, the, the broader sequence. And in general, we just don't like often find that. So it's probably that those were either just stuff that was washed up already dead um, and they butcher that and they just have it anyway. Or perhaps it was something that was weak and they picked it off. There's been sort of some debate with the evidence for shellfish because there is a fair amount of that as well and sort of different species of, of marine resources like fish or urchins and crabs and things like this. And some people suggested, well, maybe they were actually diving off the coast for shellfish. But at the same time, if you look at the minimal sort of the lowest tides, you can still wade and get these species. Um, you don't actually have to dive it. And some of the fish or the urchins things, that can be stuff that's washed up into pools. So I don't really think it matters as to whether they were diving or not. I think what's obvious is that they were highly attuned to the shoreline as a place that rewarded careful foraging and that that was part of the lives of some Neanderthals. And we can see, for example, some of them you know, seem to have understood that you can get muscles to open by sort of heating them and, and things like this. So they, in some places, they were enjoying that kind of sea bounty. How interesting. How interesting. Well, I mean, let's move on, but keep on food. But let's talk about plants. We've done meat, so let's talk about plants. Neanderthals didn't just live off meat, did they? Have we got evidence of them also eating plants too? Yeah, absolutely. What we don't have, we've got no vegan Neanderthals, I don't think. I, I really don't think that that was a possible lifestyle at any point for them. But what's clear, I think, is that sort of a few decades ago, um, there were hints from some regions that maybe plants were important. So in, in the Near East, some of the sites there, there were remains, little sort of seeds and things like this that were coming out of hearth deposits. And the question was, well, are Neanderthals really eating them or is it just part of sort of the stuff that they're burning? But, you know, people were thinking, well, they probably were because it's a rich vegetated environment, maybe. But more and more evidence has sort of built up for this as well. So not only do you find in some places you've got preserved bits in, in hearths, but you also have evidence from Neanderthal teeth as well. So when you go to the dentist and the hygienist sort of cleans all that grot off your teeth... That's kind of useful stuff for future archaeologists. They're going to have trouble in, in future. But yeah, so in, in this calculus, the dental calculus, it's called, um, you can get actual little pieces of food can, can get stuck. But also, you know, even down to, to the level of starches and things like that, which are identifiable to particular plant groups. So, for example, we can say Neanderthals in some places were eating wild grass seeds or really sort of mad one um water lily root as well which i really like that because it it really sort of makes you immediately visualize 
them wading about in a watery environment to get these kind of roots um you know whether a lake or, or a marshland or whatever but it's not the kind of thing i think most people immediately think of with neanderthals um, but that is absolutely part of their lives and just with all sorts of hunting and gathering cultures that we know of today and from the ethnographic record of the past plants are really important you know yeah meat is important of course but it's not always reliable whereas pretty much everywhere there is a very detailed knowledge of the available plants that are around what you can do with them how to process them when you can actually get them even up in um in modern sort of you know, like Alaska and, and the tundra up there, people think, oh, there's no plants out there. There are, there's loads. And and the indigenous communities there absolutely still know those and value those and eat those. That You can watch some videos on YouTube, actually, of, of people talking about like from tundra to plate and, and stuff like this. So there is this very rich knowledge. And I, I think it's quite clear Neanderthals were doing that as well. And we've even got digging sticks, what we think are digging sticks. So, you know, in terms of the tools for life, spears get a lot of attention because people are like oh hunting it's really sexy and amazing actually digging sticks are really important as well because they are what might be getting you your food every day when the hunt doesn't happen and we see this sort of value actually reflected in the way that those tools are made so the spears i mentioned at Schoenigen for the horse hunting they're very finely made beautifully carved they're clearly aware of the wood as a, as a material and its properties and there's like cool stuff like they've offset the carving against sort of the grain and stuff like this but we see the same selectivity in these things which we believe are digging sticks they they're selecting the hardest wood which makes total sense because your stick gets bashed about all the time and also they employ these different sort of quite finessed methods to actually work it and probably also using fire for some of those to to help because the wood's so hard so they valued that part of their lives as well I mean, that's so interesting. Digging sticks, maybe not as sexy as spears. I get what you mean, but it's still good to highlight seeing how important or at least, they yeah, probably framed, were. Framed by generations exactly, of, of no, uh, yeah. certain just, kinds of anthropologists. This is why we talked about hunting straight away. But okay, so if let's say a group of Neanderthals went out with their digging sticks, with their spears to go hunting or to go gathering, do we know the size of the community that they would have been bringing food back to? And do we have, sorry, it's another big question, but do we have any idea about what sorts of tasks would have been right at the heart of a Neanderthal community, let's say with the butchering of food, with other tasks that we know were associated with these communities? Yeah, I mean, that is two questions, so I'll, I'll deal with the first one. <laughs> it's really, really hard. The group size thing is one of the hardest questions that we have to deal with because when you dig any... Neanderthal site and you have what appears to be a layer maybe it's 20 centimeters thick of sediment in fact that could represent a decade's worth of occupation or a century or a millennium and you have to try and unpick what's going on in terms of the occupation history for for each layer and that's going to depend on things like how fast is the sediment actually accumulating has there been any erosion stuff like this and what we can try and do say you have a site where you believe it's quite a sort of limited time span maybe i don't know 20 50 years but then you've got a very large surface area and there are 60 hearths across that surface what does that mean you know which 
Are any of those halves contemporary with each other or are you looking at 60 different phases of occupation? In some places, it, we do actually have evidence for, for sort of this sub-micro layering where it could well be that many individual occupations. But in other sites, especially large sites, physically large areas, we're able to make arguments that sometimes there was more than one half active at the same time. And the way that we can do that is by really fine reconstruction of like micro layers within the site. And that's why we use lasers to record the 3D location of everything. Because sometimes when you're actually digging, you can't see the fine vertical sort of patterning in these objects. And it's only when later you plug it into your computer and it sort of reconstructs the layers and you can say, oh, yeah, there are different layers here. So you can do it like that. But also when I was talking about sort of keeping all the little pieces, we refit those together basically like a jigsaw. And you look at, are there any connections between different halves? So if you have shattered pieces of bone and stone, do any of those objects match, you know, literally refit back to others from another half? And that's some evidence that those were active at the same time. There are some complexities, though, because it turns out in some places Neanderthals like to recycle their tools. And in some cases, they were apparently sort of arriving at a site where there were old halves visible to them. And they would go over and be like, oh, there's a bit of stone there. Oh, yeah, I could reuse that. And so that stone moves to another half. But they don't do it with bones, like smashed up bits of animal bone. They're not really you can't really reuse those for anything. And they don't seem to sort of have that same risk of confusion. So when you combine all of these different kinds of data, what we see is that in some big sites, as I said, some more than one half is active at the same time and the kinds of halves also vary. So it seems like sometimes they had very large fire areas where they're doing a lot of processing of food that's been brought in from elsewhere and um, smashing up bones from marrow and things like this. And then there are smaller hearths, which are at the back of the site, and that might be for warmth at night and security as well for sleeping. So you do get an impression of sort of the, the spatial complexity. But the number of people, that's really tough. If you've got more than one hearth, you've got different focuses for activity but we still can't tell the exact numbers of people. And in that instance, you kind of have to look again to ethnography and sort of roughly say, well, in a given environment, as a hunting and gathering population, what could it support? And we're probably looking at really quite small groups, like less than 20, probably. And that's the impression we get from the archaeology. They're generally quite ephemeral. And in a couple of sort of instances as well where we have really high resolution layers in sites you can sort of see neanderthals coming in staying for maybe a night or two just a tiny bit of working of stone maybe they eat a little bit of food and then they're gone again and that's the only record of their presence in that one layer so is that just a tiny group or which is what i think it's more likely to be are groups sometimes separating off into the landscape to go and do different things you know, for a few days. And again, ethnographically, hunter-gatherers do that all the time. It's so interesting. I wish I could have more time to delve into these. I mean, one last question. We'll keep on that, therefore. Does it therefore hint at how Rebecca, in these communities, in Neanderthal communities, you know, right from an early age, they would have to 
learned the most important tasks that would have been at the centre of the sustaining of these communities, butchering food, cooking or drying food, and maybe art or, or whatever, that right from the start, you know, when you're a small child, if you're a man or you're a woman, you are expected, you must learn these tasks. Yeah, I mean, sort of the childhood of Neanderthals is a really fascinating topic in itself. And it's, it is something that I try to sort of discuss in the book, you know, what's the lifespan, what's the developmental sort of experience of a Neanderthal. But I think what is clear is that, again, when you look at how traditional communities operate in hunting and gathering contexts, children learn how to live, how to be by doing the things that adults do from a very young age. So you'll see them sometimes walking around with quite sharp tools and spears and things like this. And that's just normal. They're doing their thing and they're learning. They're not sort of given such a structured learning context as is normal for the way that we educate um, children in Western culture. Quite often as well, in ethnographic contexts, children are learning from slightly older peer groups, not necessarily direct teaching from adults, which is really interesting that you start to get this impression of sort of gangs of, of kids and, and teenagers hanging out and doing their thing and, and maybe the adults are doing other things. And there is a little bit of evidence for that, which is um, from one of the sites where we have footprints large numbers of the footprints at this one site, Le Roselle in France, um, they do appear to be juveniles, but of multiple ages, sort of hanging out and doing stuff. So that's kind of fun. But yeah, in terms of like, was was there like a Neanderthal childhood? It does look as if they, as you would expect, progressively learned different skills as they grew older. And there's one, there's a bit of evidence from scratches on teeth, because so not to do with what they're eating, but when you use your mouth as like a third hand to help you do tasks and things like that. Neanderthals did that as well. And we can look at sort of the patterning and the directionality of the, the scratches. And essentially it looks like young children had learned how to eat using a tool where they put the food in the mouth and then they slice it off. They're doing that, but they're not yet using their mouth to process materials um, in the way that grown-ups do. So there's an impression of like a staged development there. But the question, you know, like, did Neanderthal children perhaps have different experiences? Did they, you know, grow up learning different crafts within a group? It's an interesting question. I don't think we have any clear evidence for that. But some of the things that Neanderthals were doing in terms of their technology, which we, you know, we haven't really touched on that much. Some of it's quite complex. For example, they used hafted tools where you have an adhesive or, or a binding and you stick a handle onto an active um, stone edge and that's a complex project it's demanding in terms of cognition but also the different stages the materials that you need to use and perhaps that's one thing where sort of adults who have particular skills you know may have been passing that on to youngsters in a more structured way well as you said there we haven't really touched on Neanderthal tools at all. We haven't touched on Neanderthal art. I've got the cannibalism question in there, <laughs> dispelling that myth, of course. But we won't, we can't go into that talk today because we've run out of time for this episode. But we'll have to get you back on in the future to continue the story of Neanderthals because it's such an amazing but big topic in itself. And of course, if you want to learn more about the Neanderthals in the meantime, you know what you can do. You can have a look at Rebecca's new book, which is called, Rebecca? Uh, Kindred, Neanderthal, Life, Love, Death and Art. Well, there you go. Rebecca, it just goes for me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. 
Thanks so much for having me, Tristan. Well, there you go. There was Dr. Rebecca Rag Sykes giving you an overview into the world of the Neanderthals. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Now, last things from me, if you would like more Ancients content in the meantime, we do have a weekly Ancient History newsletter that goes out every Thursday. If you'd like to sign up for that, well, you can via a link in the description below. But last, but absolutely not least, one of the most important things I'd love it if you were able to do would be if you'd be kind enough to leave us a lovely rating on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast from. It really helps us. I love reading the comments that you leave and it really does help us as we continue our mission. This is our mission to share these incredible stories from our distant past with you and to also give these amazing experts the spotlight they deserve for their years of research into these particular aspects of ancient history and prehistory. But that's enough from me and I'll see you in the next episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.